I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. This podcast is all about looking to the future of broking. In a world of automatic, algorithmically controlled capacity, where huge rivers of data flow direct from insureds and reinsureds to carriers and beyond, where does this leave the broker? Brokers and technological change haven't always gone hand in hand in our markets. It was brokers that spurned the early versions of electronic placing and constantly worried about whether they would be disintermediated. But these days, a new broker is emerging, one less tied up in extracting remuneration out of the transaction and more intent on adding value through advice and advanced risk management services to their clients. This is what I'm discussing today with Clyde Bernstein, head of broking, Willis Taus Watson, Great Britain. A Willis lifer, Clyde is an extremely well-known figure in the London market. Anyone who's spent enough time walking down Lime Street will recognise him, because he's been in the market for over 30 years. He has excellent company, is extremely eloquent, and most importantly, he knows the market inside and out. And that's why his articulation of a vision for the future of broking is so compelling and real. If someone of his analogue pedigree has been bitten by the tech bug, we all will be. With people like Clyde around, who would bet against the electronic underwriters of the future, complaining that the brokers still always seem to be one step ahead of them? Enjoy the podcast. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access, who have kindly supported this podcast. Rick, first, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. Prime Holdings is a holding company, and we're excited to expand our claims TPA service, Claims Direct Access, which is the exclusive claims manager for Prime Insurance Company and has managed claims for Lloyd's since 1995 when we've been on the Lloyd's line slip as a risk taker. So we plan on coming over to London and uh, hopefully providing our partners more flexibility where we can issue prime paper where necessary. We can support and take risk on the Lloyd's line slip and offer our superior claim service, which is evidenced by Prime's own loss ratio for the past 10 years. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you can be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting's a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. So again, we're excited to bring superior claim service to the Lloyd's marketplace and offer the ability to share risk alongside them as we manage the claims. Well, thanks so much, Rick. And I'll make sure there are all the right links in the podcast notes and let's get on with the podcast. Clyde, we talk a huge amount about the digital future and about digital broking, digital underwriting, algorithmic underwriting, and all this stuff. With your job at Willis, this is well within your remit. First, I'd love to put things a bit in context and just ask you, when we talk about a fully digitized future, are we talking about something that's not going to happen in your or my lifetime? Or is it something that really is tangible that's going to be coming in the next few years or in mid-range? I'd love to talk about that first. Mark, lovely to be with you. I guess in terms of whether it's going to be in our, our lifetime, there's one thing for certain, is that the pace of change in the world is exponential. And we've seen that with COVID, but we've seen that as part of the way of the world of disruption in every other industry predicated around the use of computing power and the broad availability of data. And it's bringing new business models to market. It's reinventing businesses that had only been established very recently. And it's creating a whole range of new opportunity. 
So we think about reimagining business models in the corporate lens. If you think about the high street retailers, the high street retailers that didn't have an omni-channel of servicing customers and they were completely reliant or largely reliant on their high street operations, they have been completely disrupted by this thing called the pandemic in a period of, what, 10 months. And if you think about the reimagining of work, yeah, companies were thinking about how can you attract talent and how can you, you work in this future. But very much there was a, there's a few trailblazers and there were other people thinking about it and other people not even considering it. We've now leveled the playing field with regards to how companies are reimagining their workplace, how they're going to attract talent. What's the purpose of a corporation? The changes that are taking place with regards to environmental, social and governance are transforming the way that companies are going to behave in the future. And it will be more than corporate profits for shareholders. It will be about what we do for suppliers, what we do for the workplace and how do we actually create a better, more sustainable environment. And when you think about all of that, and then you think about actually this rapid, rapid change of circumstance that occurred post-COVID, unquestionably, we are going to see a speeding up of digitization in every single walk of life. And we know it now because everything's connected and data is ubiquitous and computing power is just growing from strength to strength. But the speed of change is exponential. And because of that, what we see is, I think this time for insurance, the world is different. We've tried digitization in the past, and it's been a bit of a stigma and a blot on our landscape where people have poo-pooed the idea, the timing of it wasn't necessarily right, and there were people that had interests that possibly served to fight that pace of change. What we have now is an environment where if the industry does not change and embrace technology and digitization, we are going to find that we will become one of those sort of histories of an industry that wasn't able to evolve and to sustain its competitive advantage. So I think this time, Mark, it will be very different to what we've done in the past. How quickly that will happen is a question and how long is a piece of string. But I think it is happening. And I think people realize now that the relevance and fulfilling the client needs and innovating and creating a future for this thing called insurance has to happen now and it will happen very quickly. We're talking about the future of insurance broking and reinsurance broking. Would it be fair to say that the broker, as that link in the chain, has been part of that problem and that worry about the automization of broking leading to disintermediation? Do you think that's been part of the reason why things didn't move as fast as they could do? And perhaps now that brokers are getting it, the reason why the robot will be removed? That's a good question, Mark. I guess, you know, everybody has talked about the length of the supply chain and the ecosystem of insurance, reinsurance, retrocession, etc. I guess roles will evolve as we start thinking about new ways to access capital and connect risk to that capital. The traditional mainstay of the industry around the transaction will change. And what we'll find is actually we will shift faster gear into the advisory nature where actually you can address a long-standing problem, which is how do you create value in the client's eyes and get paid adequately for the value you create rather than getting paid up till now. And part of that payment is to do with the inefficiency of that ecosystem. So I think roles will change, Mark, and actually the way that we get paid and the, that and the context of that value will evolve. Obviously, we're in a market that is very worried about its expense ratio and the frictional costs involved in that. With straight through processing from the client straight through to the ultimate risk carrier, do you think 
the brokers have really got nothing to worry about because, of course, once that frictional cost has gone to almost zero because it's fully digital, then you could actually probably have 20 intermediaries in a chain if you wanted to, if it all happened in a millisecond. Do you think that actually digitization is something that you don't really have to worry about disintermediation because actually once you're adding value and you're finding good deals for people and you're doing it really, really fast and at very low cost, then you're actually doing your job really well? So this comes down to what is your business model in this particular evolving arena? If it's creating a marketplace where you can put risk and capital together in a more efficient way, you know, we often use Amazon are going to come and disrupt our industry. But that's exactly what they did, a highly successful model where they brought together the very best of the merchants, which attracted the buyers. When you have more buyers, you attract more merchants and you can drive costs down through that. So the democratization of price and the price disclosure improves significantly. That might be one business model. I would suspect that actually, as you start to lower the cost and the frictional cost of the transaction, the way that you'll be paid in the future is actually ensuring that when you bring that capital to the needs of the clients, that that capital is appropriate for the understanding of that risk profile of the customer themselves. So being able to clearly understand the changing business model of your clients and what are the risks and their attitude to risk that they're trying to preserve, and then making sure that you can get access not to 10 markets in Lloyds of London, but you truly access the globe at a touch of a button is actually going to start to bring, again, that speed of change, the innovation, the creativity, and start addressing different types of capital for different types of solution. We've had this discussion for a very long time in the broking industry globally. Certainly 20 years ago, I think people would have said it was almost inevitable that the industry would become 100% fee-based. And in fact, I think a lot of people said 20 years ago that in 20 years' time, we'd be 100% fee-based, but it hasn't worked out that way. Do you think digitization is going to be the thing that pushes brokerage out of the picture because it becomes less relevant, because it, the connectivity is taken for granted? It's actually the added value is the intellectual property of the broker knowing how to get a better deal and how to get the right deal. Good question again. I guess the industry has been moving sort of more to a balance of fee-based advice for several years. I know our company certainly has been doing that. I guess as you start to find that the costs and the inefficiencies of connecting capital to risk reduce because you've got the plumbing in a very conducive way to support that, you will find different ways of selling to customers. And of course, the investment now around analytics and the modeling and the investment on technology to understand the needs of the corporation going forward there will be more waiting on how those pieces of components come together and how you charge for it rather than actually the transaction. And that fee-based is not about anymore about governance because we've been in an environment where governance around transparency and disclosure has been the lay of the land for many, many years. What I think you'll find is you'll simply find now that rather than actually shifting because of a governance play, you're shifting because the real value sits in the advisory role and the client relationship, rather than actually how the physical transaction takes place. In the digital world, you can always prove that you have provided best execution for your client, or at least following their instructions with the sort of security they're happy with. So that's not really a problem. And you're moving on to actually how you're going to really add value with them. Correct. Yes, it's exactly that. We talk about algorithms a lot, but we're talking about it mostly from an underwriting perspective. How do brokers add value in this age of algorithms? Do you think it should be wonderful broking algorithms that go out there and automatically get better deals for people and, and sort of outwit the underwriting algorithms? 
So I guess, you know, whether it's outwitting or whether it's just understanding your marketplace, your marketplace will evolve into more formulaic computing type answers and assessment and management of risk. And I guess the brokers that understand how the algorithms are being developed, taught, evolved, and then brought in for more broader lines of business and some of the simple user cases, it's pretty damn critical. Because if you think about in a world of ubiquitous algorithms, how do you actually get a different deal from that solution provider? Well, the first thing you better do is understand the value of your corporate IP. And your corporate IP is different to the next person's corporate IP. And if you can't articulate and understand how that IP influences the algorithm in the first place, then you will be finding that it's a me too business again. But I think the brokers certainly in the development of the algorithms, the understanding of what makes them tick, how they're learning and evolving, and then equally, how does a customer not play the system, but understand how the system is being used to evaluate risk is going to be a key differentiator going forward. Some of the people talk about this is more on the underwriting side, about algorithms. Obviously, they're very good at looking at an individual risk and instantaneously telling you whether it's well-rated or badly rated or whether it's within the parameters that it's been set for itself and the yes or no and what sort of line I'm going to write. But does it have that ability to really think about building a proper portfolio, a balanced portfolio, and to accept that perhaps sometimes you trade off the diversification benefit of something against its pricing because it's going to fit nicely into your portfolio and not overexpose you to cat in one particular area, for example. Do you think you can see that algorithms are going to be more sophisticated in that sense or they'll have to have that secondary? Will that always be something that only a human can do? I think if we approach it that only humans can do certain things, I think we're potentially in danger of repeating some of the issues of the past around change. Unquestionably, you know, we have to start somewhere. Now the algorithms are starting to help the case underwriter look at an individual case. But there are now pricing tools. And you would have seen around the work that Lloyds did last year around optimizing portfolios and looking at portfolio management, that the decision at a case level can influence the capital, the reinsurance strategy, the whole implications of the broader book of business and all the capital diversification benefits, etc. And what we need is we need tools and pricing and solutions that can help not just the case decision, but then its impact on the portfolio. And you will start finding that the algorithms will be looking at the decision to underwrite an individual case risk and whether you then pass that to your own reinsurance program or your own capital providers, or whether actually this is a better balance or it's more effective to portfolio manage to transfer that into third-party capital. And you will find those speed of button type algorithms helping and empowering the case underwriter to make those types of discussions or decisions, whether they go left or right, and what is the impact on its own capital or third-party capital. Do you think that's where the broker could really add the value, really interrogating those, helping to smooth those portfolios, really interrogating to see where it's a bit light and where it's slightly overexposed and to bring in risks that you know will help that portfolio rebalance itself and therefore fulfill the appetite of that portfolio at that given moment? I do think that's a role of us. Yeah. You know, the whole portfolio management piece around a broker thinking about managing the client's portfolio rather than actually an individual line of business will evolve. And we think about how brokers are going to evolve in the future. You know, at the moment, yes, you have specialists that work in a particular line of business, but actually as we get closer to the client, 
we need to understand not just the implications of the property account, but how do you then take the DNO and how do you consider the personal accidents and the human capital piece of that client's risk profile? And then looking at it holistically at a risk level, I want to talk to an advisor about how do I optimize my total cost of risk on that portfolio. And we're not asking brokers to change their fundamental expertise in a particular discipline, but they need to be supported and empowered with the tools that can actually work out if I take this risk into this particular market, what is the likelihood of me achieving the client's goals compared to packaging it in a different way? And the same analysis will happen at the underwriting level as well. Something you said in response to the previous question made me wonder about what the future of treaties might be in that everybody knows that treaties are a little bit inefficient in many ways, particularly when you've got things like minimum and deposit premiums and you're not quite sure what, how much your business you're going to write. In this digital world where every single risk is analysed and placed instantly, do you think reinsurance will almost become effectively 100% facultative all the time in that so it can be so much more efficient, i.e. you'll get the reinsurance for the risk as you place it? So I guess there's two strands here. If you look at the proof case around how things like algorithmic underwriting is starting to happen and how data is starting to affect the pace of change, it will have disruption on the reinsurance industry. And that business model about why you buy something on an annual basis is equally applicable to insurance as it is reinsurance. If you think about the inequity of actually waiting for a whole problem to manifest in a particular line of business before you're able to then effect a change to your buying habits looks outdated. And if you think about the next generation of consumers and how these people are growing up, Generation Z are growing up into a completely different interaction with technology, they're going to expect stuff on the go. They don't want this annual cycle. And I just think that whole disruption in the broader ecosystem, as well as some of the proof points in our industry, will bring those together and will create a different landscape for how reinsurance is purchased. Do you think it's just going to be more dynamic? So, for example, we get classes of business created out of treaty exclusions, but treaty exclusions take, we have to wait a whole year for them to come in. And sometimes longer than that, like we've just had with the silent cyber issue, for example, which is obviously going to help reinforce standalone cyber. For example, do you think in this kind of digital world, everything is just going to be much faster? Well, I think on things like the issue around introducing changes to terms and conditions, typically what we do is we, as an industry, we do that after a problem manifests, as we get better learning. Now, if we were using our data and embracing that data correctly, we would start finding the very first signs that actually this is not something that the market will tolerate going forward, or it's something that the broker should be advising their clients that you need to think about this because we know on day 16 of the second quarter that it's going to be at the peak in the market in terms of voracious disaffection to that type of coverage. And that's about predictive, that's predictive analytics where you're starting to look at correlations of unknown, unknown, the school of Rumsfeld in underwriting, where you previously haven't connected a correlation of X with Y. But as your data allows you to start looking at some of these things, what you can start to do is you start to either get clients to change buying habits or getting them to think about disclosure or the way that they manage risk much earlier on in the cycle because they've been given a forewarning as opposed to this industry position where you look at the supply-demand equilibrium and one minute it's in favour of one, the next minute it's in favour of another. And unfortunately, it's not that balanced. We have a lot of volatility. But I think the awareness and the availability of 
data sets, whether that's the client feeding directly information from their maintenance or production systems directly to their supplier, or whether this is just better predictive modeling because we're starting to see an issue growing. Think about motor. Motor's cracked it. The smallest deviation in pricing can actually affect the ultimate underlying loss ratio. We're starting to see better correlations of risks around the way firms bring in hiring and think about the training of their workforce and what that ultimately means to their loss performance on motor claims, for example. And I think that type of example will start helping us avoid a situation where there's a slam and imposition of coverage exclusions at a particular point, as opposed to us reading the lay of the land, seeing things going off piece and adjusting and correcting accordingly. So it's much more of a world in which the insurer gets in touch with the client through the broker and says, you know, your drivers just drive too fast and they drive too fast relative and they brake too hard too late relative to everyone else. So I'm just telling you that because that's going to be a problem. If they're going to carry on doing this, it's going to cost you. And then you give them the opportunity to change the behavior. Is that the way to go? That's a very good way of looking at it. And we're seeing that play out already. You know, there's huge studies around educating clients around how quickly do they notify a loss when their own driver is at fault. And the expense ratios associated with that notification are materially different when it's notified on the day of the loss compared to days two or three, because of course, invariably you lose control of negotiation. And I think if you use that and you think about reporting of data and social media and just, again, the extreme availability of technology to the users, the end ultimate audience, what you end up finding is actually things that typically would take three days to report become instantaneous. What does that do then to the expense ratio? Because it's one microcosm example, but it's about actually how do you not have to have this run on the bank where you put up with a year of terrible performance before you're able to adjust. And I think there's an argument to say, let's have that in more fluid and real time than simply this period where you consultina everything at a particular point in in the calendar. In this digital world where every underwriter gets so much better at cherry picking the best risk or identifying the best risk very quickly, do you think we're running this potential danger, a bit like what we've had on the regulatory side with gender, for example, gender-based pricing in, in motor, that being banned in the European Union, for example, how can we avoid that kind of race to effectively get the best risks, but then ostracize the ones that we know are not the best and discard them and turn them into you know non-standard risk? How do we avoid that? regulators, politicians stepping in and becoming a blunt instrument and saying, sorry, you can't do that. You can't discriminate on this basis. How are we going to get around that problem? That's a good question. Again, it's an interesting dynamic because you're right. The regulator's been there to protect the innocent and consumers more broadly. I guess what you'll find, Mark, is that as you get better information on what are the issues that are causing certain clients to find democracy in pricing and others that are actually left on the sidelines because actually their risk is not conducive to producing, in the opinion of the insurer, an equitable return, you will find new business models coming to market. This is an example of innovation, is that you could ask yourself, if you're one of the many insurers that is chasing the good risks, the sure bet underwriting, as I'd call it, then actually you better make sure that you've got the leanest, meanest platform to compete, because you are going to compete purely on price. But actually, as a business model, you might say that now I understand uncertainty of risk because I've got these feeds of understanding. I know what 
the production lines are telling me about the fact that the maintenance is not scheduled for another two months, but actually we've got some growing fissile disruption in one of the turbines. We should probably do that maintenance in advance. The uncertainty of risk is coming down. So yes, you might not like a particular client sector, but you know a lot more about it than you've ever done before. And as a business model, which one is your business model? Do you want to go and chase the lowest common denominator on pricing? Or do you want to create actually a value proposition where you help clients that have got problems accessing plenty of capital to understand how do they actually improve that proposition, use their own IP again, their knowledge that's ubiquitous in their own organization, but possibly hasn't been shared with the organizations to improve the clarity of understanding and help them move themselves back into a navigable position. And I would argue that what you'll find is new markets created for both. And that will add a bit of competition. And of course, the other thing is you're not going to find them left on the sidelines forever because people now know so much more about the risk. The knowledge is shared so broadly that actually people will pick up very, very quickly on this theme is starting to be ostracized. Let us help you now understand why the NAT company or peer group is not experiencing the same problem as, as you. So as long as you can aggregate it, understand it and price it for profit, then you're going to be fine. Something else on the regulatory side to talk about would be, imagine we're in an instant life pricing environment. People talk about that certainly now with Motor to say, we'll almost be pricing you per journey and we'll be pricing you along the way, depending on how hard you accelerate or how hard you brake or whether you're paying attention or not and whether you, you know, you're playing with your iPhone or something while you're driving. On the regulatory side, I'm sure the regulators would be very keen to understand that insurers and everybody are going to be treating people fairly along that instant live pricing journey. How do you think we're going to be able to ensure that? I guess, you know, that's part of the value proposition of the suppliers that are moving into that space. So if you're targeting a good gig economy where you know that your customer is going to be using, not using, using, not using the insurance to fit in with their own work, life, home balance, etc., that product is not going to be fit for purpose if it has the ability to simply move in and move out and leave the customer. Because what they're doing is they're exploiting a gap, which is the traditionals have not created a product suitable for that type of emerging consumer. So actually the products that are coming through now are taking account of not just a more efficient way to manage the risk, to assess and price the risk, but also introducing new forms of values. And this is a fundamental shift in the way that actually think about the purpose of insurance is that it actually starts to address that real good cause. Insurance as a cause for good. We've talked about it a bit. We've talked about it and used examples such as how we rebuild society after a major catastrophe. But more and more, actually, the issues of the product are going to be built in with that true delivery of a promise to pay. A promise to pay where you look after the consumer knowing that your biggest sales opportunity is the performance of the payment of a loss at a time of a crisis. You just think about what we do at the moment. And I think I use the analogy that the great Steve Jobs, if he looked at this insurance product, He'd say, okay, so your purpose is a promise to pay, correct? Yes, it is. And why is it then you bury as an insurer your head in your hands when a loss comes through? You should be singing from the hilltops because that is a customer for life. And it's a customer that's going to tell six of their friends to go and buy from you. It's your biggest sales vehicle. And what we end up doing is we end up reassessing the client. We substantiate the loss. 
We spend weeks and months, etc., articulating to try and get to this issue of indemnity. When in reality, that principle, that doctrine of 100 years has moved on with times. We know now which clients are scoping the system, which ones have a moral hazard. The availability of data will tell us that. We'll understand that from looking at whether the client is going through a divorce, whether they've got county court judgments. All of that information is available to us, but it was never there before. So how do you actually use that to say, we are now going to use this promise to pay based on the value of the product. And the value of the product is to get that consumer back on their feet as quickly as possible. And if we can think like that and build that into the proposition of the product, we're not just addressing this typical insurance thing, we're addressing all of the environmental, social and governance issues that are coming down the track. On that claims product idea, how far do you think digital claims broking can go? Obviously, things like parametric covers are obviously going to be instantly payable because the parameter will either be hit or it won't be hit and then the payment will be made. But how far do you think we can really go with digital claims broking and what reasonably could we expect what percentage of claims could be fully automated and paid instantly, or say within 10 years? I think a very high proportion, because what we're going to see is we know that the purpose of the product is this promise to pay, and we're not doing a fantastic job as an industry in that respect. And then when you look at actually the algorithms and the machine learning and the artificial intelligence that's being adopted, we sit on a minefield of data. And it's not just high volume business, it's low complexity business that can be adjudicated in that way. So you'll start with very simple claims and small value, and you'll learn and the, the algorithm will evolve. And we might need to make sure that we're not making some of the mistakes that have been seen in some of the algorithms or AI up till now around bias. But you'll find that actually the claims adjustment process will happen quicker and faster, and it will be applicable to more and more and more things. As the data grows, as the clarity of our contracts improves as a fundamental role of actually giving the customer what they bought and what they said on the tin, you will realize that the performance and the claims adjustment will improve exponentially. And is it going to be small business only? No. There'll be complex claims, unquestionably, that will, at this point in time, need further review and insight and expertise of the human intervention. But certainly, if you viewed the purpose of the product as that promise to pay, you'd be doing everything possible to effect a faster payment on the claim side. So certainly on physical loss or damage type claims, presumably the last bastion of human intervention is going to be where there's bodily injury and there's some legal liability. So you can need doctors and lawyers to help you out. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. But if you think about, I don't know, the number of papers that have been written on COVID from the medical profession, is when you think about Wikipedia is 20 years old now, and it, get, it used to be again questioned as to whether it was a version of the truth or not. But actually, it is now used by professions more extensively than anything else. Because actually, when you have 80,000 of the world's very, very best clinicians and medical officers, etc., writing about what they're learning, seeing, experiencing in the world of health, for example, on this particular crisis called COVID, and you bring that into a database and you run it, you learn far better. And that's how we, as a world, has been able to produce vaccines in the space of 10 months compared to many, many years. And I guess if you think about that, actually using some of those vast, vast amounts of data that sit out in the world that just not been able to get hold of in the past or being able to analyze, well, we can analyze them now because computing power is stronger than it's ever been. 
the availability of that information. There's a culture of knowledge sharing, actually, where we do open up and we make things available as opposed to being protective. And that's the democratization of knowledge theme. And what you'll find is you'll find that actually even things like bodily injury will start actually taking into account multiple different views or lenses about actually how do we quantify or understand the issue of going to court over five years or whether actually we decide to make an intelligent view now. And the intelligent view now will be very different in the future to how we've historically decided whether to go to court or not because of that knowledge and that information and access to things that will help us make better and more informed decisions. Presumably it would also help inform the plaintiff to realise that they probably should settle when you're offering something reasonable. Absolutely. And it will be a credible case. You make a very good point. Some of the earliest manifestations now of digital underwriting, as we describe it, are the follow-only businesses operating now in the London market. Do you think those businesses, if they're, let's say, piggybacking on certain leaders, do you think the structure of the market should be changed so that those follow-only, which are very lean in expenses, pay some of those lead markets fees for the work that they're doing in the way that syndicated loans markets or banks have been doing this for many, many years? This is a very topical conversation. And I guess we historically we're talking about leaders' fees here. And if we compartmentalize leaders' fees from leaders' fees of old to leaders' fees of the new world of algorithmic trading and a lower expense ratio, follow-only type models, I think we have to review the fact that the work that the leader is doing and the fact that somebody's riding on the back of that, not as an injustice. You know, and I think we need to get out of our head that that actually has inequity because what I see is I see this as a, actually a fundamental business model decision as to whether you want to run your business in a highly efficient way and use technology and data and algorithms to effectively do that business differently to how it's been done in the past. Or alternatively, you create your proposition where you've got proximity to clients and you have the resources, the skill sets, the industry understanding to generate the, the solution. Because if we think about it as an injustice, what we'll see going forward is the leaders that are creating the model around better risk selection. I could understand them asking and attracting capital because they can prove that they have the ability to assess risk better than anybody else, price risk and make a constant return that is reflective of market dynamics and would attract capital in that way. I could see them driving that business model to attract capital as a far more effective way than relying on someone else to pay your wages because you've created the business model. Whether you want to be a follow only or whether you want to be a leader, the way that you earn money is based on we've invested in technology to make this lean and mean, or we've actually invested in capability and insight and resources to make the very, very best decisions from a client perspective. And I don't think we should get back into how we money swap, who pays for what, because actually the people that are questioning at the moment about whether this is a fair play are the people possibly that haven't quite yet worked out whether they want to continue or whether they have a multi-strand type strategy where they have capital that supports a follow-only type of style and a capital that drives risk selection and proximity to customer. But I think it's a dangerous game if we apply the old thinking of leaders' fees to this new model that's creating its innovation. It should be rewarded and not inhibited. 
if a leader wants the fees, they should actually get that capital on their own balance sheet, or at least through their own relationships, their own sidecars, and they should be organizing that capital around their underwriting rather than just underwrite their own account and then worry about what else. If something goes out into the open market, then it's in the open market and they shouldn't necessarily have any hold over the economics. Correct. You know, that investment, you can imagine that the people that are doing follow only at the moment as an introduction, they're introducing softly, softly. Yes, it's innovation. It's the first that's been tried, but they ain't going to stop there. They're going to start actually looking at that algorithm and saying, actually, how do we now use it to price risk? And when I price risk, Actually, can I do the job of a lead position or can I, can I do more than a follow only proposition? And you'll find that actually capital will start navigating through to people that have those types of models. And of course, then you're probably looking at, is that a more sustainable model where your risk selection, your use of technology and algorithms, et cetera, lower cost of operating is a more sustainable model to produce a better return for your shareholders than actually propping up your underwriting with a 5% overrider from a follow market that's paying you a leader's fee. That's going to play out, but I would suspect that if we want to control our destiny, we need to get away from asking somebody else to look after the fact that I can't get due return from my front-end underwriting. Would you think that leaders will inevitably become bigger, have bigger lines? That's a possibility. Or alternatively, you could see a situation where actually the follow markets become far more authoritative. Because actually, if you're a leader with a capacity, let's say you're able to put out a 20% line on a contract, but you need 100% to fulfill the client's needs, actually the capital that is aligned and prepared to align itself to you as a leader's proposition can actually change your proposition with the ultimate client. So if I know that I have a following because I'm producing the very best returns, I could see a situation where my offer is 100%, not 20%. Or alternatively, the following markets become more authoritative than the leaders in that respect, because they're the ones that make or break the proposition in the first place. So that's, that's another sort of interesting play that we'll see over these next few months and years. So we've really got nothing to worry about necessarily. It's all going to be competition. It's going to be fairly Darwinian, and the best underwriters, like always, are going to do fine. Yes. One last question, Clyde. What would be your parting words to anybody listening to this to say, what can we expect to see sitting in Willis, head of broking? What sort of changes would we expect to see over the short and then the medium and then the long term? Mark, I guess my advice to our business is that disruption and change is now just a standard thing we have to live with. And if we reject some of the changes that are coming through and we don't embrace them, we will be a pawn to those that are more interested in looking at this opportunity, this thing called insurance, and actually seeing whether they can not disrupt the whole ecosystem. We've seen that, that insure tech, et cetera, are coming in and taking small bite-sized shades in areas of whether it's claims or whether it's distribution or whether it's operations. But embrace the change. Let's get on the bandwagon. Let's evolve the broking proposition so that actually we have a future. Because if we do not, start using and thinking about how do we maintain our competitive advantage in this changing landscape, we will find that actually we have been disrupted by technology. But if we evolve our skill sets and our use and our embrace of technology, yes, the way that we work will be different. And yes, maybe the way that we've transacted business will be different. But I'll tell you what, we've got a future because we've controlled our destiny with a lot of IP and knowledge that we've gained over these 300 years. 
than simply saying it's never going to happen and waiting for the inevitable. Clyde, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Good luck with everything and do come back and give us an update on this digital future as it unfolds. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for your time. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan, in association with Advantage Go, enabling underwriters to increase the speed and accuracy of decision-making. Original music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.